Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you, Pastor, for inviting me. Thank you to the elders for agreeing with the pastor and letting me come. And thank you for coming this morning. It's my pleasure to be able to share with you today. Can we start out by reading God's Word, please? And in particular, I'd like to turn your attention to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May God write his word deeply on our hearts as we quietly consider it together this morning. I've been uh, preaching for a long time, and I don't mean 45 minutes as opposed to 50 minutes. I mean in terms of years. I, I recently uh, re realized that uh, I had been preaching for over 70 years, and I talked to the Lord about it recently, and I said, how much longer do you want me to do this? And he said, till you get it right. <laughs> and so here I am again this morning trying to get it right. As I've had the opportunity of speaking to so many people, I've had the opportunity of having them speak to me as well. And there's some very interesting things that people say to preachers. I'll let you into a trade secret here. I was uh, invited to speak at a, a little church in a small town in Oklahoma. And I was there for a whole week of meetings. And the pastor was very careful to announce repeatedly every, every evening that I would answer questions on the final night. And he seemed to be quite excited about that, which was more than I could say for his congregation, which was proved to be the fact when on Friday he opened it up for questions and there was a loud silence that enveloped the building. Then eventually one little lady ventured to put her hand up tentatively, and she said, I got a question. So I said, yes, what's your question? She said, I've been here every night listening to you. So I said, well, thank you for coming. She said, and I've been thinking about this every night when I've gone home. 
So I said, well, now's your chance. What has it been really concerning you, this question? She said, yes, it certainly has. So I said, let's have your question then. She said, okay, is them your own teeth? <laughs> well, that was a start. It was a change from the ladies who object to the tie I'm wearing or don't like it that I'm not wearing a tie, or the lady who said that the pattern on my shirt made her eyes wobble. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but perhaps my favorite, this didn't happen to me, it happened to somebody else I hastened to add, but the lady was being very, very complimentary to the pastor, to the preacher, and she said, your preaching has changed my life, and I'm just so extremely grateful to you. She said, I don't know how you do it week after week after week after week. You keep producing new messages from God's Word, and every week is better than the next one. <laughs> think. <laughs> I think she wanted to say every week is better than the last one, but she got it around. But anyway... We preachers take what we can get. Recently, I was hospitalized, and uh, things were pretty serious, so they tell me I was unconscious for the whole time, so I, I just take their word for it. But it was very interesting when I bumped into some of my men friends. I'm particularly interested to see how men react to uh, things like illness and death. The, the, w women, I think, are more skilled at this than many men. This is a broad generality. But uh, w w a, a number of men came up to me and said, well, God evidently isn't finished with you yet. <laughs> and then they sort of laughed briefly, slapped me encouragingly on the shoulder blade, and go about their business. Now, women would take much longer than that. And somebody did say that to me not long ago. Well, God isn't finished with you yet. And I, decided, I, I started thinking about it. I started wondering, do I really believe that God, who created the heavens and the earth, who upholds all things by the word of his power, who has a great cosmic eternal plan in place, who is working relentlessly and inexorably towards his foreordained conclusion, do I really believe that he is at work in me? I, I, was, I was challenged as a young man by an, an older, much older man who I looked up to a lot I had, had some problem with my spiritual life. I don't remember what it was. I was talking to him about it. He was very helpful. But in the end, he said something to me that cut right deep into my heart. He said, Stuart, your problem is very simple. You don't believe what you believe. You don't believe what you believe. We compartmentalize. If you're not careful, we, we may have a compartment that academically says... Yes, of course, God is at work in my life, see. But there's another compartment that says, what's the evidence? And what's he doing? And is he making progress? Does it really matter? And these are the questions that were reverberated around my mind 
as a result of that very casual, facetious remark from one of my friends, God evidently isn't finished with you yet. The more I thought about it, the more my mind went to Scripture, and particularly to Philippians chapter 1. Let me just read a, a brief re reading from Philippians 1, Philippians 1 to you. Verse 6, no, verse, verse 5, verse 4. <laughs> I'll, get it, I'll get it right soon if you wait for me. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, I love this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is an astounding verse of Scripture. Let me read it to you again. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus falls neatly into three compartments. That verse of Scripture, it says, first of all, that we are confident that God has begun a good work in us. That's, that's, one, that's a good point. We are confident that God has begun a good work in us. Secondly, we are confident that he will carry it on. He didn't just start it and drop it. He, didn't, he wasn't a deistic God who created and then left the creation to work everything else out. He started something and he continued with it. He started work on me and he carried on year after year after year after year and he ain't finished yet because it goes on to say this and he is, we are confident of this that he will carry it on to completion. There is a designed end. It is intentional. It is ordered. It is foreordained. It's out there. And are we confident in this? Are we sort of geared into this? Is this the thing that we wake up with in the morning? Here we go again, Lord, you haven't finished yet. Here we go again, Lord, I'm so glad you started it and I'm so glad you didn't quit on it and I'm so glad that you know where you're going with it and I'm so glad we haven't got there yet and I'm so glad that today I can discover more of what it's like to be confident that God who began a good work in me will carry it on until the completion at the day of Christ. You see, what we really believe about this makes a world of difference. So let's look into those, those words for, for just a few minutes. We'll take them one at a time, which is a, a sort of orderly way of doing it, isn't it? 
one, one, one thing he, he says here is, we are confident that he who began a good work. That, that makes me think. When did God begin to work in my life? It says he started something. We know God is an initiative taking God. When all said and done, he didn't have to make the universe, but he did. It was an, a unilateral decision that he made. It, this was his intention. He rolled up his sleeves and he went about it and he did it. He is an intentional God. He is a God who is organized, he is structured, he is working according to plan. And I'm talking not just about the universe as a whole, but about you and me. God we, makes us confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Before the heavens were made, God purposed in his heart to make creation. Before he purposed in his heart to create the, that which was uncreated, he determined something, that he would make at the pinnacle of that created order and in integrally related to the rest of the created order, but separate from it, something called man, generic man, male and female. God intended this before there was anything. And he made man, and he is very specific about how he made man. He made man in his own image, in his likeness. Now, that's, those are two rather enigmatic terms. They probably are synonymous. They probably mean the same thing. But theologians have argued and debated for years, centuries, about the exact meaning of what it, what it means that God is the image of God. It is helpful to us to be told in Hebrews, for instance, that God who's communi communicated with the human race in various ways from time immemorial had in the most recent days, that is before Hebrews was written, spoken to us by his son, whom he has, and then he goes into a description of who his son is. And among other things, he said he is the express image of the creator. So there's a clue as to what it means to be the image of God. You remember one day they asked Jesus a question about paying taxes, and he asked for a coin. He apparently didn't have any money himself, asked for a coin. And he said, look at this coin. And there is, you can see a, a picture, if you like, an image of Caesar. And he says, whose, whose superscription and image is this? What was the image? It was an exact replica. It was not the same. It was not the original. It was a replica and a representation of the, of the, the original. And so the idea of image is, is fundamentally an exact replica of the original. What's God like? What, what, how, how would you describe God? 
What did he look like? How did he behave? He's a spirit. Well, we don't really relate to that very well. He is eternal. We, don't, we can't get our arms around that. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-gracious. These are mysterious concepts, but he's, he's put them in understandable form for us in Jesus. And Jesus is the express image of him. But it goes further than that, for not only is Jesus in the express image of the Father, but you and I are made in his image, and we've been, we've been transformed more and more into the likeness and the image of Jesus himself. And so this is where we get the idea of human significance, of human worth, of human value, of human dignity. This is where the Christians get their, their positions on racism. This is where Christians know what they think uh, about abortion. This is, this is where a system of moral, moral thinking and ethical behavior has its roots. It's not that we have something inherently in us because we're human. It is simply because as humans we're made in the image of God. And that, what that means is this. God made me as a person that he had created of value and of worth and of significance in his image. Not only that, by the way, brothers and sisters, he created everybody else the same way. And that means we are people reflecting something of the glory of God, even in our fallenness. And so are the other people all around us. And if we could begin to think instead of what divides us and focus on what it is that we have in common, that is, we're all created in the image of God, perhaps there might be more recognition, there might be more respect, there might be more dignity. We might, as human beings, actually start behaving ourselves. And all this was in his mind before he began to create the world. Now we do know, as we move on a little further in this story, that there are occasions when God did speak to people and say, before I knew you, before you were in the, when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. When you were in your mother's womb. So what I've just been saying is not fanciful, it is surely based on what the scriptures are saying. And so if God is not finished with me yet, let's think about where he started. Before the worlds were made, I was part of his plan, and he knew what he was going to be, make me into at the end of my days. And in the interim, he was looking to me to be a person who recognized what it means to be created in the image of God and to begin to honor that and live according to it. But I need to press on, keeping an eye on the clock. Not only does it say that he was, he knew, we are confident that he who began a good work, he goes on to say that the work that he has begun before the worlds were made, that he has carried on. 
So what happened next? Well, I was brought to birth. And there's something called prevenient grace. We don't have time to talk about it. You've talked about it a lot, I'm sure. That which went before, that which took place to bring us to birth, that which took place to bring us up into into adolescence, that which was at work before us, preparing the way for us to go. Until one day, under some circumstances, this is what happened. As Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 1, God called me by his grace. God called me by his grace. The call of Christ came loud and clear to Paul. I believe the call of Christ is being sounded out in the gospel, wherever it is proclaimed, wherever it is lived, wherever it is debated, wherever it is read, wherever it is enacted, whatever way we communicate it, there is always something coming loudly and clearly in the message of Christ. It's what we call the call of Christ. The call of Christ has two dimensions to it. The call of Christ is first and foremost an invitation. It is an invitation where Jesus says to people today, come unto me, and then you can add the rest of the sentence from different parts of Scripture, but always this welcoming, come to me, come and identify with me, come and associate with me, come and follow me, come and learn of me, come and trust me, Come and work with me. Come, come, come. But there's a second dimension to it. And that's not invitation, that is summons. There is a tone of summons in it because, well, quite frankly, he is the one in authority. And if the one in authority extends the invitation, it's not surprising if he stipulates the details of the invitation which is exactly what he did. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 1, that he who called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. That was what was was going to happen. He was going to reveal his son in me. This is the call of Christ. If we have difficulty thinking of a call as being a summons and also an invitation let me give you an example. Perhaps, you're, perhaps you, you've been fortunate enough, that's the way I would put it, to be transferred by your company to London in England for six months. And you have the opportunity to go and learn English and do all kinds of interesting things in England. To learn about English history as if that's of any interest to you. Then one day you're very surprised. You get a a note, uh, a phone call from a personal secretary of the Queen. And, and uh, she says that the Queen has heard that you were in England and wondered if you'd like to come to Buckingham Palace for tea. And so the, 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 the lady in the house is ecstatic about that and the man of the house is thinking about the round of golf that he's going to be missing. But anyway, they say, yes, they'd like to come. They say, we'll send you more details, which come eventually. When the new details come, they're told what day, what time, 
which guides at Buckingham Palace should report. What is suitable dress? They should not address the Queen unless she addresses them first. They must under no circumstances touch the Queen except if she extends her hand. They should shake her hand but only take hold of three fingers because she'll be shaking whole hands with a thousand people that day at this intimate tea party and all this sort of thing. The wife said, well, that's just perfectly normal. We're going to see the Queen. The, the, the husband said, well, I don't think I need to do all that kind of stuff. And you are supposed to curtsy to her and you don't know how to curtsy and I'm not going to bow to her. She gets up in the morning like I do. But anyway, they show up. They go to the wrong gate and they argue with the man with the big red, big hat on, the guardsman there, and they eventually are allowed in. They see the queen, and so they go rushing up to her, and the wife gets hold of her and gives her a big hug and says, oh, Liz, I'm so thrilled to meet you. Thank you for inviting us for tea here today, and I am so concerned about you and your dysfunctional family. Let me... Let, let me pray for you. Let me do all kinds of nice things for you. And you know something, something would happen. You, you would feel a tap on your shoulder and a firm hand would get hold of your elbow and you would be very, very ceremoniously, very graciously, but uh, there'd be no mistake about what was happening. You would be taken to the gate and you would be let to go on your way. And you could be saying, but I was invited, I was invited, you can't throw me out, I was invited. And the queen overhearing would say, you most certainly were, on my terms, not yours. That's a call, that's an invitation. It's an invitation that's a summons. And this is what happened to the Apostle Paul, this is what happened to me. And it happened to you, didn't it? Can you think back when you first got the, the inclination that God was getting a message over to you? Can you think back to the very early days? Or maybe there wasn't very early days. Maybe there have been a lot of days that have gone by before you ever took the time to listen to the call of Christ. It's an upward call. That's what Paul calls it. An upward call. And this upward call is designed to lift us to higher things, to nobler things, to grander things, to eternal things, to spiritual things, to the things of God. And it has this power to lift us into greater things. Can you think back to those days and say, thank God that he took that initiative and I've been taking that initiative before I was, when I was in my mother's womb. He has not left it. He has carried on. And the, one of the things that he did was he called me to himself and he imparted to me the means to respond. And I found that I'd been translated out of Adam, where God reckoned to me all that he reckoned to Adam. And he translated me into Christ, where God reckons to me all that he reckons to Christ, and I'm born again of the Spirit of God. Has that happened to you? Are you confident that it has happened to you? 
being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work, etc., etc. But notice that in Galatians 1, Paul goes on to say this, that when he called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, this is God at work. God reveals his son in me. Now, as far as Paul was concerned, he sure needed a lot of revelation of Jesus in him because he got Jesus all wrong. But God, who is committed and faithful to do his work, was willing to work in the inner recesses of Paul's confused mind and heart and begin to work clarifying things, relearning things, teaching him the truth, a process that Jesus gets into and once he's started, he carries it on and he is committed to completing it in his own good time, in just a minute, in my good time. So here's the, here's the picture now. What, what happens to the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, while he was Saul of Tarsus, an up-and-coming young Hebrew rabbi, knew something very basic about the, the Hebrew faith, and it was this. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Have you ever wondered why the, the Jewish people went to all that trouble to have Christ crucified when all they needed to do was pick up stones and stone him to death and the Romans wouldn't have bothered with that at all? That, that's what they did to the first martyr. Why didn't they do it to Christ? And the answer was because they wanted him on a tree. They wanted him on a cross. And why? Because they wanted him to become a curse for us. And so this is, what people, this is what Paul, the Hebrew rabbi, is thinking. Jesus died on the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus is accursed. Messiah is not accursed. Therefore, Jesus is not Messiah. Quite easily demonstrated. Next problem. And because he was totally convinced academically and intellectually that Jesus could not be this is the Messiah. He was got everything wrong about Jesus. But then God wasn't finished with him. God intercepted him on the road to Emmaus. And it was a bit, bit dramatic, I will admit. And he had a vision of the risen Christ. And there was the loudest oops ever heard in the human universe. For he suddenly realized that he had been coming up against the one who would become a curse for us, who had died on the cross, taking our curse with him so that we might be forgiven. And in so doing, had opened the way for us to come to be reconciled to the Father. But not only that, he was alive and he was talking to Paul at this time. The crucified Savior, the risen Lord, was one and the same person the one who had been risen and, and was ascended to the Father's right hand was in the place of ultimate authority. And he calls him Lord, and he says automatically what you say when the Lord calls you. Lord, what will you have me to do? Have you got there? 
being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on and carry it on. I've got four minutes left and I'm going to take all four of them and then I'll stop. Because there's a third point here that I need to mention to you. You see, it, 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 it talks about he who began, it talks about he will carry on, and then it talks about and he will complete. He will complete. First Thessalonians, let me, let me just read a verse for you here. First Thessalonians 5, 24. Verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we're heading. This is the telos. This is the end. This is what we're heading to. This is what he is working on. That's what's going on in you right now. If he's begun a good work and is carrying it on as a good work, this is what the completed work looks like. You will be sanctified through and through. Body, soul, and spirit will be through and through sanctified, set apart, clean, forgiven, no blemish, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The past forgiven. And then in addition to that, raised into newness of life and given a body like Christ's resurrection body, waiting for the new heavens and the new earth to be made so that with a new body, as a new creation in Christ, you join with the redeemed and become the new people of God and the kingdom will have arrived and the kingdom will have arrived to go on living forever and forever and forever and forever. And this is where the story ends so far. Now we run into a problem because all that's in time once he starts work on us. But when we die, we move out of time and space and we move into infinity and eternity. We're not equipped to understand that. So that's all ahead of us. But we do look forward to it with great joy and anticipation and confidence. Why? Because of being confident of one thing. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Well, if you knew how much I'd left out of this talk, you would come and hug me at the end. But don't worry, <laughs> I'll just assume that's the case. I thank you so much for listening. God bless you as you ponder these words in your heart. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that we try to understand that we speak to you and about, that we depend upon the Holy Spirit who inspired it, to interpret it to us, that you bring people who you've gifted to explain it. But we know how fallible we are. We know how mistaken we can be. So my personal prayer is simply this. Please forgive and help the people to forget that which was unhelpful or just plain wrong.
and take what is of you and of your word and help people to treat it with the respect that it deserves to spend time pondering these things. For you have told us, meditate upon these things and I will give you understanding. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.